0: If you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm on the left, and you also know that I'm pretty concerned about the state of the left. Here's an example of the kind of thing I worry about, from a conference of the Democratic Socialists of America in 2019.
1: Guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. just want to say, can we please keep the chatter to a minimum? I'm one of the people who's very, very prone to sensory overload. There's a lot of whispering and chatter going on. It's making it very difficult for me to focus. Name, chapter, pronoun. Privilege. Point of personal privilege. Yes. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone.
0: My next guest was briefly at that conference, and he writes in his hilarious book that the worst part about these viral video clips is that the DSA was live streaming the conference. Everyone knew this, he writes, and everyone seemed to think we're building the kind of movement where no one is allowed to make a loud noise was a good face to present to the world. Ben Burgess is a philosophy professor, a columnist for Jacobin Magazine, and the host of Give Them an Argument podcast. His recent book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, is a brilliant critique of the contemporary left. In it, he argues that the cancel culture apologists who say that nobody is ever truly canceled are missing the point.
1: If it's ineffective, it doesn't actually exert any consequences or accountability on anybody who would actually objectively deserve consequences or accountability then all you've done is make yourself look like an overgrown hall monitor and you, you haven't even gotten anything for it. There's nothing on the other side of the ledger. There's no accomplishment that balances out You know that extremely bad look.
0: Ben Burgess joins me on the podcast today to make the case for a smarter, funnier, and more strategic left. Ben, welcome to Lean Out. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. As I mentioned to you before, I have read this book a couple of times and have thought about it a lot. So excited to speak with you about it. I want to start with a passage you quote Mm -hmm. from the late Mark Fisher's essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle. He writes, left-wing Twitter can often be a miserable, dispiriting zone. And that earlier this year, there were some high profile Twitter storms in particular, in which particular left identifying figures were called out and condemned. What these figures had said was sometimes objectionable, but nevertheless, the way in which they were personally vilified and hounded left horrible residue, the stench of bad conscience and witch hunting moralism. Describe for me this dynamic Mm. we're dealing with and what damage it does to the left.
1: Yeah, so I think there's an element of this that isn't specific to the left. I think it's just about trends in society in general, uh, having to do with the technology and and the way it, uh, for better or for worse, democratizes everybody yelling at everybody all the time. And also, I think maybe just the fact that we live in a really atomized society where people often feel most connected to other people online, and there are a lot of bad incentives built into the platform itself. But I think that what Fisher is describing there, I think there is an element of it that is particular to the left, and it has to do with the way that left politics can be turned into a politics of individual moralism, you know, that everybody is sort of constantly under suspicion that they have said something. Or done something that shows that their heart isn't really in the right place after uh, after all, and I you know I have a lot of thoughts in the books a book about why uh, we uh, we we end up being like that, but I don't think there's any denying that oftentimes we you know we are like that. I mean I think the reaction to Fisher himself after he wrote that essay and and I think he was pretty brutally hounded for it because there's this sort of there's this kind of leap from. You think that when people are canceled and vilified in ways that are often framed in terms of social justice issues, like the struggle against racism or sexism, and if you think that that's objectionable, then you know you must really think that racism and sexism were fine, and, uh, <laughs> and and you're you're revealing you know who you uh, who you really are, and and I think that there's a way in which this. Uh, the way that this plays out, I think, is so familiar that I think people sometimes give it a pass. That uh, it's sort of baked into uh, to the experience, and you know, and and we tell each other all kinds of stories about how it's you know it's not that big a deal. It's okay. Everybody knows that online leftists are annoyed, but you know, there there are larger things. You know, there are larger things in the world. Don't worry about that. And I think that once you're inside that bubble, it could be easy to sort of forget how that reads to everybody else outside of it.
0: Indeed. And you quote the viral clips from the DSA conference, which Mm -hmm. I have in turn quoted myself, because I think this is such an incredible illustration of this. I grew up in progressive circles. It, it, that, conference just feels like my childhood a hundred times over so (laughs) complete with me eye rolling the whole time what is happening there like why are people behaving like this when we want people to listen to our ideas
1: yeah that's a great question so i you know so my view about this looking at those at those clips you know which i i was was not in the uh in the room when they, they happened, although the conference is about half an hour from where I'm sitting right now. And and I, I did stop by to see people a couple of times, but but I didn't actually attend the sessions because because I you know I have done that in the past when I've been a delegate and I've had to and this time I didn't have to so I wouldn't uh you know because because I I see no particular reason to you know put myself through that as a civilian because <laughs> nothing that I saw in there surprised me the least, you know, based, uh, I mean, I was a delegate at the DSA conference in 2017. And, and unfortunately this is, this is very familiar behavior, this kind of scolding one-upsmanship, you know, that you, you could find more things to object to and, you know, and, and, and be more mad about that than everybody else. And you could exercise some sort of strange petty power, you know, by being the one who, who gets mad about it. And of course, I don't doubt for a second that most people who were in the room while all that was going on were, you know, doing what you did growing up. Maybe, you know, maybe not on their faces, but certainly in their heads. (laughs) Uh, And you know, and no doubt some of their faces. But there's also a reason that nobody ever objects to this stuff, right? No, that like you could have however many people, a thousand people sitting there, and nobody nobody is doing much more than maybe rolling their eyes. Right. You know, nobody is like getting up and saying, guys, don't be ridiculous. Stop it. Right. And I think that, you know, I think it's understandable because presumably, you know, you don't get into this because you want to spend your time arguing with crazy people about whether it's okay to clap. You, uh, you do it because you care very much about the fact that it's the richest country in the world. And there are millions of people who don't have healthcare and, the United States is always fighting wars around the world, and you know we have this incredibly unequal society, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That's what you care about, and so all of this stuff is—you know—you're just willing to make a kind of calculation that that's—it's baked in, it's fine, right? That's just the deal. You know, you you live with it, and don't actually stop to think about the fact that when nobody ever does objectivity of that, that this is the face that everybody sees. This is the face of the left that's projected to the world with predictably uh, disastrous consequences, you know, in terms of the appeal that it can have to anybody who's a normie, by which I don't mean like, I know some people hear that as dog whistle, but all I mean by that is just, is not soaking in the subculture of uh, of radical politics, no matter what background you're from. And my view of the book, my theory about how it is that we got to be like this is that it's a symptom of powerlessness, that any kind of politics that's to the left of Democratic Party, kind of, you know, mainstream liberalism has been way out in the wilderness for a very long time, certainly in the Anglo-Sphere countries, you know, that that, that I'm most familiar with. I think it's more complicated in other places, but I mean, certainly in those countries, it's out of the wilderness for a very very long time there's even sort of honorable social democrats you know like bernie sanders jeremy corbyn spent the great majority of their life in the well the bbc equivalent or the american version and you know they you know talking to c-spat at three in the morning you know when uh when nobody uh nobody is watching and certainly any kind of politics that go beyond that had just been outside the bat. And so I think a symptom of that is that little by little without being necessarily conscious of it, I think people stop thinking about radical politics as a serious project to change the material world for the better and start thinking about it as a kind of symbolic, you know, protest against the many, you know, very real injustices of the world around them. And So, which is why I always say, like, if you read, like, look, I love Noam Chomsky, but if you read any book by Chomsky, there's never a point where, like, on hundred page 197, he'll say, like, just for the record, if there were ever a socialist government in power in the United States, this is how it should handle the situation, right? You know, and there's a reason he's never going to say that, and I think that's because during the sort of decades that most of that writing was happening, especially... That would have just sounded like say, well, you know, when I'm in of the universe, you know, here's what I'll do, right? You know, it's it's silly, right? It's it's it sounds delusional because it's so far from uh, it's so far from politics as you really experience it. And that's understandable, but the problem is that when you stop seeing politics as anything but a purely symbolic protest, then your incentives get really bad because you don't have to think about. How it is that you're going to frame what you're saying to be appealing to vast numbers of people who are only going to pay attention to you if you're very lucky, you know, very briefly at at moments, not necessarily if you're choosing, who do not think and talk about politics all the time because most people, you know, just don't, right? You know, they, uh, and so because they don't spend all their time thinking about politics like you do, they have. You know, they don't really have an internally consistent worldview. Most people do not. And because of that, you know, it's, it's going to be a mishmash. Like what attitudes they have are going to point in different directions. You know, there'll be things that you can work with, but also also things you might find objectionable. And if you're serious about taking power and achieving your political objectives, you'd spend all of your time really thinking about how it is that I can connect with with people like I've just described to talk them into caring about the things that I care about and mobilizing for the kind of political project that I care about, but if that's not really on your radar, then there end up being all these incentives to sort of have the the kind of purest protest that you possibly can to like really show, you know, if it's it's all just basically an inventory of the soul, you know, like how much you personally or you know are committed to opposing, you know, the injustices around you, then you you just want to make that protest as as unambiguous as all possible. In ways that could oftentimes, you know, make the problem of how to of how to reach out to people who aren't really on board with everything even worse than it is already, and and there's also a tremendous incentive psychologically, I think, just to look for whatever victories you can find. Which means that if you can't win the big fights that actually matter, you know, you can pick some tiny fights that don't matter, but you know, but you think you can you think you can win, right? I mean, look if if You know, we live in a world where, you know, whatever, however many decades after, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was passed, getting some landlord somewhere to put in a ramp that he's supposed to put in is a huge lift. You know, you can't necessarily do that, but hey at a DSA convention I mean like anything that you say that you want to the name of disability accommodation you know go nuts right i mean you know, you can probably convince people of literally anything and then you know you feel like you've won something somewhere even though it's completely meaningless and even though the the effect is going to be totally alienated to to most people they're going to try to reach and i think that's a model that applies to to a lot of things you know that you know you can't change how policing works in any meaningful way but you can sure get somebody fired You know, you can't really change how you know American foreign policy, but you know, you can certainly get everybody to get mad at Barbara Ehrenreich for you know for for tweeting something where she, you know, Mm -hmm. uses the phrase "speak English" in a way that, if you interpret it, you know, if you lift it up at just the right angle, might sound like she said something chauvinistic, and and that at least you know at least everybody's at least everybody's mad at her, and at least you know you've got everybody sort of pointed in the same direction as you, and Mm. that even though it's not something, it can certainly feel Like something. And there's some there's some emotional catharsis in that too.
0: I want to return in a moment to how the modern left is perceived by the public. But first, as you're kind of referring to cancellations, the New York Times has Mm -hmm. printed this editorial board editorial. There's this massive uproar on Twitter with many people doubling down saying cancel culture does not exist, or if it does exist, it's not effective. In the book, you say it not being effective is a problem. (laughs) Walk me through that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I have been vaguely seeing like Twitter discourse about that New York times editorial for like three days before I actually sat down and read the editorial. And I knew that a lot of people's complaints about it were ridiculous, but I, you know, I was expecting the editorial itself. I have to say to be a little bit worse than it was because when I actually read it, okay. I mean, you know, there are things I could nitpick here. There's stuff that's sloppy, but like, this doesn't actually say anything that people got mad about, right? Like that. Like the most superficially reasonable sounding criticism I heard was that it was equating social pressure, kinds of cancellation, with like laws that Republican state legislatures were mm. passing that, like, are really a problem for free speech. It's like, okay, if it really was equating those things, fair enough. That's a that's a valid criticism. But it wasn't right? I mean, like it, it said right at the beginning, right that like it mentioned both of those things, but it mentioned it in a way where it said that the second thing was worse than the first one so i I don't know what the i don't I don't know what the problem is and then and then there were some predictable, really weird responses about how like actually if you do actually if you try to like stop somebody from speaking to the campus, then you're stopping them from speaking as a kind of speaking. And, you know, it's all free speech. And I, I just, you know, I, I always wonder if people who say things like that really even believe what they're saying, like uh, whether they're taking it seriously enough for that, or it's just kind of a thing to say. Mm. So you can, you know, you can respond because I think everybody knows better. I think if they're, you know, if, I think if they were like, you know, I think if they were like right wing McCarthy groups, you know, going around like stopping, Noam Chomsky from speech College Campus. I don't think anybody would be confused about what the distinction was. But, yeah, but all of this is, as you say, working on the assumption that that we're talking about effective cancellation and why that might be bad. But I, I actually do also think, like you said, that's a problem if it's ineffective, which it usually is, because there is this sort of funny game that people often play when they're defending sort of Twitter mobbings, uh calls for fire deplatforming etc 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 where they'll say on the one hand that actually this is an important tool to empower oppressed people that uh, that that if you know people have been marginalized have the ability to you know, speak out and, and do consequences and accountability, you know, that, that that gives them some kind of power. So they'll say that, but then they'll also say, what are you complaining about? Nobody's ever really canceled. It seems like, a, okay, which, which is it, right? I, I, I don't see, I don't see how it can be both of those things, right. That they have, if nobody's ever really canceled, where does the accountability come in? And of course, people will also say, oh, people are just objected to being criticized. But I think that too seems pretty incoherent because how, how is criticism you know, like like being criticized is, isn't being held accountable, right? That there's there's mm. no account. That's not a consequence. That's just like you know, if we're really talking about criticism, then sure, people disagree with you, they criticize you, you respond and criticize them back. You know, nobody's been held accountable for anything. There are no consequences, right? They, I, th- I think when people use this language of accountability, consequences, they kind of understand that there's a difference between having a thousand people yell at you. And being criticized, right? You know, that like I think every human being actually understands that difference when it gets gets right down to it, you know, that they say, like, nobody thinks that the the Scarlet Letter is a book about criticism, you know. But but I also think there is some truth to the nobody has ever really canceled defense, you know, that that's that's not completely wrong. Because even though people are, right? I mean, there are people who lose their jobs or you know, have other sorts of actual consequences. Which I do find pretty objectionable, and you know, and I, I think I actually think the left can and should own the issue by saying that you know we could fix a lot of this by rebuilding the labor movement and getting rid of at will employment, so people people would have much more security against those actual consequences that are very bad. But I also I also think the germ of truth is that it is probably in most cases, probably the great majority of cases, true. That usually, when people flip out and get mad, and you know, and there's there's a there's an outbreak of people getting mad online, and especially if who they're getting mad at actually does have any sort of power or you know popularity in the real world, then it goes nowhere and it does nothing, right? Mm-hmm. I think I think I think that's absolutely true, but I don't think that's defense. I think I think that's a problem in itself because it it seems like. If that's the case, then I don't understand what possible defense there could be of that behavior, right? Like I can understand saying that this is an important tool for you know empowering marginalized people, and if you really believe that, you know that it's like okay, well, you know we could have a cost-benefit discussion about that, right? You know this the sort of harms and, and goods that you know that that might cause, but that's all assuming that it's effective. If it's ineffective, which again it it is in many cases, probably a great majority of cases, then We've only got costs, there are no benefits. Because if it's ineffective, it, it doesn't actually exert any consequences or accountability on anybody who would actually objectively deserve consequences or accountability. Then all you've done is make yourself look like an overgrown hall monitor. And you you haven't even gotten anything for it. You know, there's there's no, there's nothing on the other side of the ledger, you know, like like, like there's no accomplishment that balances out, you know, that extremely bad look. And so I at that point, I just don't even understand what the argument is in its defense.
0: Mm. And I
1: want to talk about Joe
0: Rogan for a moment. You know, you had this great piece in the Daily Beast recently saying anybody arguing for weakening free speech norms should realize that the people that that is going to hurt the most are the dissident left. Yeah. And on that note, you do talk about Joe Rogan in the book and about the mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders sort of endorsement and how that was handled. You recently went on Joe Rogan and mm-hmm. you had a great tweet about what happened afterwards in the bar. Tell me that story
1: sure so i you know and it is actually very funny because i'll have people now say things like oh you know you only you wrote the daily beast article or even you wrote the book because you know you're like angling to go on joe Rogan." <laughs> and it's like okay when i got that invitation it was on super bowl sunday and i remember like seeing it on my computer and like taking my computer over the couch to show to my wife and and she said, I looked so shocked she thought somebody had died, you know, that they had a, like, I, I had, I, this, for many reasons, this is not something that ever would have occurred to me as an invite, right? I mean, the, the, the reason that, the reason that I think it's a bad idea to try to censor Joe Rogan, I mean, the reason I think it's a bad idea for people to get mad about the Bernie campaign for, you know, accepting the Joe Rogan endorsement is that I... Wanted Bernie Sanders to win that election. And, and that seemed really counterproductive. The reason that I don't think it's a good idea to censor him is uh, is that I think that corporations that would be making these decisions are not our friends and, and they're not going to make the decisions that we want them to, even aside from anything principle about free speech, which I also care about. But yeah, so after, you know, so anyway, that said, very unexpectedly, I, I, I did get this opportunity to spend a few hours in Austin drinking bourbon and talking politics with the Fear Factor guys. That was great. But then flash forward a few weeks. Weeks. on st patrick's day i was out with my friend ryan uh, bar hopping in atlanta we were at a place actually kind of across the street from where i am now where it's it's one of these big you know circular bars and you know we're we're, we're sitting at one end of it and there's this there's this dude on the other other side who were you and joe rogan a couple weeks ago <laughs> yeah uh, and, and he you know and he Introduces himself to us, and you know, there's like five minutes of shouty conversation across the way. Then he comes over and he buys us a drink, and we talk. And uh, the guy in question is uh, describes himself as a born and raised redneck. He he works in uh, the construction business in Atlanta. He's a very solid middle class guy, but he describes himself at the beginning of the conversation as a as a fiscal conservative. Although I think what exactly that means to him is. You know it becomes very unclear to me quickly, although I think that's not atypical, right? You know, that they have a, you know labels like that mean something to people, but they don't they're not necessarily that predictive of what they're gonna think or what they're gonna agree to when you start talking to them. So so he says, of course, you know, he you know, disagrees with me about lots of stuff. He remembers I I work for what he referred to as a liberal magazine, you know, by which he met you know, Jacobin. I think this is a guy probably is not making a lot of fine grained distinctions about liberals and socialists and anything else, you know, that, that it's all kind of the same thing to him. But he liked me on Rogan. I said he said I used like the word like too much, which is totally fair. I did. I was, I was uh, probably nervous, you know, while I was talking. But in the course of the conversation, I mean we we have it was like a 20, 25 minute conversation, you know, we did resolve everything, you know. He 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 did still really disagree with me at the end about how taxes should work, but he did. Over the course of the conversation, he signed on to Medicare for all, universal pre-K, redirected a lot of the money that's spent to the military on those things. Said he was very uncomfortable with abortion, and we got into that a little bit. But you know, but but he you know when asked what he actually wanted to do about it, he wasn't willing to actually say that he wanted to uh, to ban it. And and in, over the course of conversation, you know, he, he he said he agreed. You know, when when I said this that you know that the you know, much better thing to do would be to provide financial support for young mothers to create a more meaningful choice. And, and there was, uh, there was a lot of that, right. You know, over the, over the, over the conversation. And I think that that's obviously it's a very small thing. I mean, it's just, it's just one, one guy who, who has sort of ran into and happened to recognize me from going to Spotify while I was, while I was out at the, uh, at the bar in Atlanta and, you know, whatever. I mean, some of this is, uh, probably confirmation bias um, because obviously this is this sort of paints exactly the picture that I want to, uh, you know, I want to, uh, I want to paint it, but I do have a witness, Uh, but but, uh, I will say this, this really does strike me as the kind of thing that you can have. I think this is a very small example of the kind of thing that I really wish people would do a lot more of. And that I think that a lot of what I'm sort of complaining about in the book you know, I, I I feel like it's in the the way up, right? I mean, the what what I would say after the conversation with Rogan is that, you know, when talking to Joe Rogan, right? I'd I'd have I was tried to have you know basically about the conversation that I had with this guy at the bar, and about the conversation that I would have, I would I would hope people would have, hope I could get a model that I want people to have with like somebody who like maybe watches my show, reads me a jack, but, you know, that I would want that guy to have with, you know, his brother-in-law who like maybe doesn't share all of his cultural sensibilities, maybe doesn't wear a mask at the grocery store, you know, but who might actually be somewhat susceptible to appeals on core economic issues and, and might be willing to at least give everything else a hearing. Because I think there are an awful lot of people who, who match that description, and if you if you don't have a way of reaching out to those people and at least having friendly conversations with them and, you know, try to move the needle a little bit in our direction, I don't know what hope there could possibly be for a successful left project.
0: Mm, indeed. And this is great. Cause I want to sort of close just by talking about where the modern left is right now. Yeah. And this idea that we can't talk to people <laughs> In different camps of the political spectrum is crazy, but as a journalist, especially crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you touched on this sort of vague definitions, and there's mm-hmm. this kind of weird scrambling happening between the left and, and the right as well. And I'm noticing that positions you outlined at the beginning of our conversation match with what I understand as traditional leftism, socialism mm-hmm. in particular. But you also have this massive group of people now who are more maybe what Michael Lind would call technocratic neoliberals, (laughs) right? Who, Or what you might call a a corporate centrist who who have these kind of far left cultural ideas, but are center right or even right in terms of economics. And I think it's really confusing the public. It it confuses me sometimes as well, Mm -hmm. because there's this mass of people that are backed by corporate America that are pushing these so-called leftist ideas. Mm -hmm. And often in really annoying and counterproductive ways, but they're also not really the left. Like, how do we deal with this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And and I I also think that there are a lot of people who would probably not along with just about everything that I, you know, maybe not the part about outreach, but, you know, but other than that, right, you know, might not along with just about everything else I said, who in practice, I think, are really influenced by the people that you're talking about, because I think that these, I think that, Going back to the relative powerlessness of the serious left in the United States, I think that there is a tremendous temptation to just sort of get sucked into tailing whatever's going on with sort of the liberal end of the culture war at any given time, which is not always and everywhere a bad thing. I think that if the, I think if like what people are fighting about, you know, this Tuesday is... I don't know. Should trans people be allowed to use the bathroom? You know that that, that I think that the I, I think it's a good thing. You know to tail the uh, the liberal end of that, but I think the problem is that because people oftentimes do end up getting sucked in practical politics, right? I mean, even even people who might be in the privacy of their own heads, they might be God knows, right? You know there's or you know in the in the whatever description they put on their Twitter profiles, right? They might be democratic socialists or anarchists or, you know, Marxist-Leninists or however they, will, however they want to think about themselves, right? You know, I, I think in practice still get sucked into this. And because so much of that happens on the basis of this kind of team identification and rooting for your team, and most importantly, rooted against the team that you don't like, then people end up sort of getting sucked into whatever people are arguing about, you know, this Tuesday, and not really applying their own principles to it and, and, and not really thinking, okay, like given what I actually stand for, right, what should I want here? But, you know, just sort of working backwards from owning the people they don't like. And uh, that ends up putting people in a lot of really strange places, you know, like, you know, for example, instead of just sort of trying to, again, talk to Joe Rogan like, you know, like you would talk to, you know, your brother-in-law you you do, you think has some weird, you know, some like impulses you don't like or whatever, but it's like basically approachable, right? You know, then say, oh, let's like get Spotify to take a show off the air, you know, they, uh, which makes perfect sense if you're that kind of technocratic centrist you're talking about. But I think makes a lot less sense if you have the kind of political project that could only be fulfilled by means of, mobilizing the vast majority of the population against entrenched interests uh that you that you'd have to defeat to make even the modest parts of it actually happen in the uh in the real world and i think that it is really important to to make those distinctions that that i actually think like right now in this you know, still much better than things were like 20 years ago or whatever, but comparatively dismal sort of moment when, you know, the, the sort of Bernie hope from 2015 to 2020 is gone. And there is this danger, I think, of some of these political distinctions that are important to people like me getting erased. My friend, Baskar Sankara Jacobin said, it's, it's like, you know, back when Facebook, you know, used to you'd set up your Facebook profile and, it would, it, and like one of the boxes would be for politics and the choices were liberal, conservative, very liberal, or very conservative. So, so if you're, you know, if you're a socialist, either you'd leave it blank or you'd say very liberal because that was the closest, you know, that uh, that, that it allowed, right? And there is this very real danger of some of those boundaries, you know, getting uh, getting erased again. And I think that I often think like the sort of two front war right now is one. Tried to show that, like right wingers who now, in the era of Trump and all that, like you know, claim to be you know populists, you know, who, who care about the little guy, really are no such thing, right? And two, and two, making exactly the distinction that you're talking about, you know, because really, this the the kind of very social justicey technocratic centrists that you're talking about, what they've done essentially. I always recommend. Thomas Frank's book, *Listen to Liberal*, from 2016, on this: what they've really done in practice is to redefine social justice. So it's not really about raising the floor for the majority of the population. It's 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 really about you know raising the ceiling for you know underrepresented demographics and having a more diverse ruling class. And so you you end up with this because a lot of the disparities they care about are really unsolvable unless you do much more basic economic redistribution, that it's just not going to be the case, for example, that you're going to have exactly, you know, you're going to have like an exactly demographic proportionate numbers of, you know, white and black people coming out of the kinds of schools where people have their pick of universities and all that stuff, as long as, as long as you you have massive poverty that's going to disproportionately afflict Black people because of the history of Jim Crow and et cetera et cetera et cetera, right? So, in order to do something about that, you'd have to either have, I guess, sort of racially targeted reparations, which which is good luck with that, right? I mean, because because I don't know what the coalition is that you could assemble in practice that would actually do that, right? Or could have broad based universal economic redistribution. But they don't really, you know, the people you talk about don't really want any of that, certainly not the second one. And so given that there, you know, there's this sort of moral intensity about, you know, making everybody do these like anti-racism trainings, kind of like anti-racist vision quests at work and, you know, and, 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 and spending a lot of time, you know, feeling very emotionally intense about it. In ways that aren't actually going to do anything to to change the underlying material realities. And as they get more intense about it and as widespread irritation with it makes enough of the public have a bad reaction to that, that the right wing is obviously going to get a lot of mileage out of reacting to that. I mean, I I think that should be pretty obvious why. You're going to get this kind of bad dynamic where that a lot of people who who maybe would sympathize with something more seriously left-wing. Are going to spend all of their time reacting to the right wingers who are weaponizing that stuff, and never actually get around to saying, "Okay, but also this is all nonsense, right? This, this is not, you know, this is not what we're about, right? I mean, what we're about is sure making sure that you know we have legal and civic equality for, for for everybody, and you know, absolutely, you know, that they they have. Anti-discrimination ordinances should include everything, you know. People, trans people, should be allowed to go to the bathroom in peace, you know, all that stuff, right? But in terms of going beyond what we've already got, like really, the point is that we need fundamental egalitarian, you know, economic economic changes. And the only way that you're ever going to achieve that, I know this is all way easier said than done, you know, but I mean, I think I think you. The first step is admitting you have a problem, you know, like you have to at least start out by <laughs> acknowledging what you have to do, uh, is that is that you have to, you know, the only way that you're ever going to achieve those egalitarian economic objectives is if you can assemble the kind of coalition that would include a broad enough majority of the population that you can only achieve it by, by sort of cutting through the Team Red versus Team Blue culture war stuff. And I'm certainly not going to pretend to have all the answers about how to to do that. But I've got to think that the first step is to like talk to people instead of trying to get them to, you know, take it off of Spotify.
0: <laughs> well, that is a good place to leave it. The book is smart. It is funny. I, I found it a huge island of sanity in crazy times. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.